Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us today as we continue this series on gospel friendships. This sermon is entitled, Gospel Joy in a World Gone Mad. How Jesus Radically Frees the Christian to Live Joyfully in an Angry and Chaotic World. After the presidential debate this past week, this may be a message that many of us need to hear. The reality is that the gospel creates two radically different responses when the world spins out of control. Paul weeps over those who have turned from Christ as Savior to seeking to save their own lives. It's not simply because Jesus is worthy. It's because there is no other name under heaven by which anyone can be saved. Let's come and weep and rejoice in the Lord together. Let's see Savior and share the all-surpassing worth of Christ. Let's worship together. So take your Bibles, please, and turn to Philippians. Let's go to Philippians chapter uh, 3. We're at the end of the chapter there. And uh, the, the purpose of the book of Philippians is to get you anchored in joy in the Lord. And so that's why that song is a great song to lead into our study this morning. And you and I um, need to recognize that every week we battle for joy, don't we? You find yourself day after day, week after week, fighting the fight for joy, fighting to believe what you believe, fighting to trust what you trust, try, um, fighting to know what you know. It's amazing how long you can be a Christian and how much the battle goes on in your own hearts and in your own homes to hold on to what you have in the Lord. So the Bible comes back at it time and time again and just brings us back to the foot, the feet of Jesus and reminding you that you live day by day in a world that is desperately in need of a sane joy, right? We live in a world that just needs sanity. But beyond the sanity, sanity is not enough if we could get there. The world needs the joy of the Lord as their strength. And so that's why we're in Philippians, because we have a duty, not just to ourselves, but we have a duty to the world to show them that there is a hope and that there is a Savior And there is a safe and sane place. And boy, I tell you, America needs to know where that place is. And that place is not a place. That place is a person, Jesus Christ. So would you take your Bible? Let's go to uh, Philippians chapter 3 and look at verse 17. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Again, Paul has um, articulated in this chapter his all-consuming commitment to Jesus. So you can't read Philippians and you can't read Philippians 3 without getting a sense with the Apostle Paul that Jesus is everything and that he has sold everything out and banked everything upon Jesus Christ. His uh, elite status as a Christian theologian or a Jewish theologian, his position as a righteous man is absolutely rubbish compared to what he has found in the revelation of a risen and reigning Christ. And I want to put those together because even as we've just sung, friends, Christ has died for our sins, he has risen from the dead, and right now he reigns. Right now he is interceding for you. So sit there weary and weak and let the Savior do his work through the Word. So he's going to speak through the Word, his Word, and he is going to glorify himself so your joy might be made new and fresh and strong. So let's listen to the word of the Lord 
this morning. Philippians 3, brothers, and he means their brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, many, he says, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly or their appetites, they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. But, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time I want, read that, I want to just stop, read every word. The Lord Jesus, who comes to save, right? You shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. The Christ, the hope of all peoples down through the ages, the Messiah who has come, the Lord Jesus Christ is who we're waiting for, and he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Who has the power? What is he going to subject? All things. To whom? To himself. So is that good news? That's good news this morning. So when I was a young person a million years ago, Christian Rock was just starting out, and uh, Randy Stonehill, anybody who knows, probably nobody even knows who Randy Stonehill is. You know, so, you know, oh, you know, thank you, Chris, you and I, we know who Randy, Randy Stonehill came out with a song which said, it's a great big stupid world. So I got that in the back of my head this week. It's a great big stupid world, dum, dum, da, dum, dum, it's a stupid, That's, that was a song. He's a Christian guy, came out with the song. He said, and we're feeling kind of queasy as it turns around. I get the feeling that that's the attitude of a lot of people right now. It just seems like it's a world gone mad and we're all queasy as the world is spinning around. In the Bible, in the book of Proverbs, we see that a lot of people, when people lose hope, people feel sick. And so Proverbs chapter 13 verse 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. So hope deferred. You know what it is when you have your expectations up and then your expectations are dashed? We've all had that. It seems like the American dream is being dashed right now. It seems like the hope of the nations is coming crumbling down in front of our very eyes and people are feeling kind of queasy while the world goes round. So I'm here to tell you something, that there is a hope that cannot be shaken. And there is a king who is already on the throne. And Psalm chapter 2 says that God sits in the heavens and he laughs as the nations rage, as they seek to bring that down. And so here's, here's my point this morning. I'll tell you what I did this week. I came home, I got in home about the middle of the presidential debate. And so I came in and I watched, I don't think I watched for a full minute, I got it. I think I did maybe 45 seconds, and I realized in the middle of the debate that nobody here was acting presidential, <laughs> at least not in the moment that I plugged in. And as I'm watching the chaos go out, I thought, you know, you turn it off and you go, who is the debating coaches? Because basic high school debating tells you what, if you're in debating, don't let your opponent get you off your message. 
Don't get your, let your opponent draw you into the mud. They want to draw you in to the mud and mire. And so what I want you to hear this morning, what you see there, is don't let the madness get you off message. Christian, don't let the madness of the world around you get you off your message. Don't let what's happening in the world around us in the hostility and the chaos get you off your mission. I would tell you that our mission remains all the more clear now, and the message of the gospel has much more hope right now and clarity in a world that is seeing crumbling down around it. Don't, so here's my point this morning. Don't let the chaos keep you from one, carrying the cross, and two, rejoicing in Christ. Got that? So don't let the chaos of what's going around you keep you from picking up your cross. Don't get lured into the mud. Don't get drawn into the fire. Because isn't that the temptation? When you live in a swirl of hostility, lunacy, the temptation is to say your peace. You don't need to say your peace. You need to point to your peace, the Prince of Peace. Philippians is about that. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, make your request known to God, right? And the what will come? The peace of God. Get your mind focused on the right thing, and who will be with you? The God of peace. The Lord is near. That's what he's coming back. Dear friends, what the world needs and what the world is resisting is what we only have to offer. Because if there is no Christ and there is no King and there is no resurrection and there is no future, my friends, there is no hope. And this world is getting sick because it sees hope evaporating Illusory hope evaporating before your mind, before their eyes. So let me read you a couple verses from Jesus to anchor you in this. In the Gospel of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, John was writing a paper this last week, working his way through the theme of the Sermon on the Mount for his schoolwork, so I read through it. In the Sermon on the Mount, we have this fulfillment text around the person of Jesus. And Jesus, in setting up his kingdom as the promised king, says these words, You are the salt of the earth. Do you believe that? You are the salt of the earth, Christians. The earth is not the salt of the earth. The world is not the salt of the earth. The political environment is not the salt of the earth. The church is the salt of the earth. Don't lose what? Your saltiness. Don't get drawn into the mud and mire. Don't get suckered in. We are different. Jesus says, if, if, you lose, if, the, if salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing but to be thrown out on the road. Jesus says, you are the what? Light of the world. So what should you do? Set your light, right? You're a city on a hill that can't be hidden. Nor do people light a, no, people don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine. Don't let your light be dimmed. I, I, I drive an old 4,000-year-old Toyota Sequoia. And I have repeatedly, just so you know, so for those of you who have talked to me, I've had a few guys come up to me and say, you need to clean your headlights. Now, you know, in the daytime, when I'm normally driving, I don't know that my headlights are dimmed. When I drive home, I wonder, why is it so dark? 
right? Because if you let the fog or whatever builds up on your headlights over a while, it starts to dim. He says, don't let anything get in front of the light. Don't get anything in front. Who's the light? Jesus is the light of the world. Don't let anything dim or diminish the clarity of your commitment to Jesus Christ. Don't, you are a city on a hill. Let your light so shine. We cannot be drawn down into the mud and mire. We need to be clearer than ever about Christ and about our mission and our calling. So can I pastorally tell you, Waterbrook, Waterbrook, I need you to be really clear about Christ in these days. I need you to be very clear about your calling. You are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. This world, if it doesn't have Jesus, has no hope. This world needs hope right now. Desperately needs the church to be clear. So I'm going to give you a couple of points this morning. And for you guys at the back who are doing PowerPoint, it's not on your PowerPoint, so i just give you <laughs> the thumbs up back there. I'm going to tell you two things out of this text that you need to do. I hope you can remember this. Here's the first thing. Weep, don't walk. Got that? Weep, don't walk. And what Paul's going to say, because he describes this, when you look at what's going on in hostility against Christianity in the world around you, don't engage the way the world's engaging with us. Don't walk that way. Don't live that way. There is a gospel way. Don't give up the gospel way in order to engage the world. Weep over the world. Don't walk like the world. Got it? And then he says, when you think about the gospel, walk and don't weep. Okay? So that sounds confusing. But when you're looking at the world and what's going on in the world, weep. But don't live like the world. Don't respond like the world. Follow Paul's example. He's in prison sharing the gospel while they're trying to kill him. Isn't that the great thing? What do we have in the gospel? Jesus Christ, what's he doing? They're crucifying him and he's saying, Father, what? Forgive them. They know not what they do. You see how Christianity functions? We are so countercultural. We are meant to be radically countercultural. And we as Christians in our flesh want to respond in kind. When the world insults, when the world gets corrupt, when, the, when we get in the scrum of a presidential debate, we get drawn into the mire. Please, friends, turn off Twitter. Shut off Facebook. If you can't, be like Jesus. Be quiet. Right? And so what I'm actually saying is we're not called to be silent. We're called to show Christ. So on the one hand, when you see what's going on with the world, weep. But don't walk like the world. And when you think about the call of Christ and the suffering that's coming or that you have to endure, walk, carry your cross, get on mission, but don't weep, rejoice, because he is king, he is reigning, he will build his church, it cannot fail. Aren't you glad to be on the Lord's side? Aren't you glad to be there? Aren't you glad that he is? So let's walk through this text, and I want to show you. So here's the first part. You know, you have two options in this world. One of the options is you can put your hope in humanity, and guess what's going to happen? You're going to be disappointed. You put your hope in the presidency, whichever your party is, i got to tell you, you're going to be disappointed. Not once, not twice, perpetually. Disappointment regularly produces Hostile, hopeless, hedonistic, shameless materialists. That's what Paul's saying here. That's what 
That's what hopelessness does. Hopelessness, if you, can't, if you don't see a solution, you're going to go into despair. You're going to get argumentative. You're going to be hostile. You're gonna be, you want to know what's going on in America right now? America has lost hope. People have lost hope in economic solutions, racial solutions, geopolitical solutions, environmental solutions. People have lost hope that there's any hope out there, and they have become angry, they become materialistic, they become narcissistic, they become depressed, discouraged. There's all kinds of things. Christians, they've lost hope. We have the hope. We have the hope. So when you see what's going on around you, don't get ticked off and reactionary. It shouldn't surprise you. It shouldn't surprise you. It should cause you to grieve and double down on the gospel. Grieve. So let me just walk through and show you this. Let me remind you of Jesus, for example. And I want to talk a little bit about what this hostility is like in the culture and what Paul is seeing. Now remember in Paul, he's in prison. And remember, in Paul's day in prison, the Christians were the easy scapegoats. And so there's lots written around the time when Nero decided he burnt down part of Rome, decided to blame Christians who were tied to the Jews, and there's a scattering of people. There's a lot written about what the Christians were like by secular uh, writers who were alongside Nero at the time, and Christians were called a kind of weird antisocial group that were kind of disrespectful, and they were just an easy scapegoat. My dear friends, Christians are part part of the problem. We're part of the problem. Let's be honest about that. The history of the church is problematic, but also the reality is we're an easy scapegoat. When you're frustrated, we start, what happens when things go wrong? We start, when we don't look in the mirror, we start looking for people to blame. That's nothing new. Isn't that Adam and Eve? First time they fall into sin, what happens with Adam and Eve? They start pointing, yeah, they hide, and then they start pointing fingers when they're confronted. It's the woman you gave me. It's the serpent who tempted me, right? They start pointing around. Well, that's what happens in the culture. But listen, I want to give you, the, I want to get, give you a picture first of Jesus. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and he is about to be crucified. And it tells us this in Luke 19. When he draw near and saw the city... He wept over it. Can, can I just ask you a simple question? Have you wept more than raged? Have you wept more than got cynical? Have you wept when you see the, what's going on in downtown Minneapolis? Have you wept at the frustration and, and, the, and, the, and the sense of hopelessness and futility that pervades the culture? I mean, Jesus, it says he wept, and he said, would you, would that you even have known, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Oh, if you only knew what would bring you peace. You know what we think makes us, would bring us peace? If we got the economy right, if we solve global climate change, if we got everybody, if we got racial issues and the balance, all this kind of stuff in place, then that would bring us peace. Friends, there is no peace without the Prince of Peace. And Jesus says that if you knew what was going to bring you peace, the only peace that's possible is when you nail me to a tree and I die in your place rather than destroy you. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do you hear me? Do you see it in Christ? So let me just talk about these titles that he says here. If you look at verse 17, and Paul says, I weep. 
And I tell you, walk this way. Don't, don't get engaged like that. Walk the way that you see in us and others. But he says in verse 18, For many of you I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, he's weeping, walk as enemies of what? Enemies of the cross of Christ. That's a key line to understand. They are enemies. They're not enemies of you. They're enemies of the gospel. They're enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, here's, here's the reason why they're hostile. And you could see this in a couple of ways um, in this text of Scripture. When you say, who's Paul talking about? He could be talking with weeping about people who once professed Christ and now have turned away. And we see that in our culture. We see all kinds of people who once professed Christ, musicians, preachers, Christian leaders, who were once passionate about the gospel, now they deny the gospel. And I, I'll almost always put it to you that they have become enemies of the cross of Christ because the cross of Christ has not produced the world they thought it would produce. People have not, people have not shown themselves to be who they hoped they would be. They've lost hope and they've turned away. It could be those people Paul's talking about. It could be the Judaizers who are coming along and become enemies of the gospel because Jesus isn't enough and now they become hyper-religious. You need Jesus plus a strong religious um, legalism. And, and that's an enemy of the cross. Why? Because that tells you that hope is in my hands, not Jesus' hands. And it depends upon me. Or it could be just the Roman Empire that's got Paul on trial who's not giving him a fair hearing. It, it, at one level, it doesn't matter to you and I who the is. We just need to understand what the is. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. What's the message of the cross of Christ? We're sinners. This is a trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says... I'm the chief. Here's the difficulty in the culture. The culture wants to blame somebody. We like to blame the, the politicians. The politicians want to blame each other. We want to blame global warming. We want to blame something and someone. We want to, we want to blame historical racial issues for what's going on. What's the difficulty? I, we had a good conversation with friends from California last week about... Um, uh, ra racial issues that are going on and, and uh, some of the theories that are going on in terms of identifying the, the, the problems and the causes behind, behind ro racial tensions. You know, so one of the answers is, is to take the disparities that, um, that exist historically between people and equalize them. You know what hap ends up happening? We see it in America right now. When you try to silence a group of people because they've been part of the problem, you try to get rid of the oppressors, you become the oppressor. It's just, it's repeated all over human history. We, we don't learn it from history. The problem with humanity is not that humanity isn't racked with historical sin. It is. The problem with humanity is I have a problem with sin. And the offense of the gospel, the offense of the gospel is we come along and say to people, you can, you can radically reshape the cultural reality and you can rede redefine everything about America's history. You can do all of those things. But if you don't repent of your sin, you will perish. The cross puts everyone on an equal playing field. So the problem with America is me. The problem with America is the protester. 
The problem in America is a politician, and we don't like to hear it. Tim Keller says this, today's culture believes the thing we need salvation from is the idea we need salvation. Isn't that an indictment of our culture? And, and so you and I need to pull back and just realize that what we need to be able to say clearly to people, and so, and so let, let, me, let me talk about the walk-talk thing here. Let me, let, me, let me put it this way to you. When we see the culture hating the gospel or hating Christianity and saying we're the enemy, Christianity's the enemy, historical Christianity's the enemy, whatever, when you see the culture doing that, don't do the same thing. Because what the enemy is doing is baiting you like in a debate into a fight because what he wants you to do is to start talking like the world is your enemy. Isn't that the danger in America right now? You get a bunch of Christians rising up and shaking their fists at the world instead of saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The role of Christianity is not to tell the world it's going to hell in a handbasket and to rage against the world as the world's raging against us. Don't walk this way. Do what Paul is. Lay down your life for the world. Tell them that Christ saves sinners. When they say there are racial issues, you'll go, yes, from the beginning of time to the end of time, unless Jesus changes our hearts, we will hate our neighbor, not love our neighbor. We will hold bitterness. Oh, God, forgive me. God, forgive me. I repent. Thank you, Jesus, for dying in my place. So, so, so to you as a church family, I really need to say this and repeat it. Do not fight like the world fights. God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only son. And so the call of Christ, what Paul is saying is don't rage, weep. And don't engage the way the world engages. That make sense to you this morning? He says they're hostile, they're enemies of the cross. Look at verse 19. Their end is what? destruction. Their end is destruction. My dear friends, the end is destruction. Should you just rage? Should you engage? Should you get into a Christian versus non-Christian insult match? What's at stake here? Eternity. Their end is destruction. Here's what's going on in America. They know their end is, in, is destruction. Right? That's where the hope is lost. What, what's happened in the, in the West in the last generation is that people have turned from religion to science. And we're not anti-science. We've got a lot of scientists in our church. We've got doctors and engineers, and we've got all kinds of people who are science-oriented. The problem is the interpretation of the data, what we're doing with what we have. And so we've got people who have looked to science as the solution for a better world, and guess what happens? They look at the data, and the data's not good, Right? They despair. The, the chief priest of the last generation in the religion of science in the Western world is Stephen Hawking, right? One of the smartest guys, physicist out of Cambridge University. And Stephen Hawking has just passed away. And if you're a follower of scientific inquiry as your belief system for the hope of the world, and your high priest is Stephen Hawking, who you get your view of reality out of, you don't have much hope. Stephen Hawking, when he died, did several interviews and wrote, he was just full of despair. 
Wired Magazine had a number of descriptions of what he was teaching, what he was thinking, and interviewing with him, and, and listen to what he says. Hawking, they said, Hawking believed that the earth would be destroyed by an asteroid strike. He just did math, and he thought the earth would ultimately be hit by an asteroid. So he writes, this is Hawking speaking, this is not science fiction, it's guaranteed by the laws of physics and probability. So you talk to your best scientist, you know what he said? He was saying that we needed to move off planet Earth. We needed to get off planet Earth because his words were to stay risks being annihilated. I was just talking about being hit by an asteroid. Then you get him talking about artificial intelligence. And uh, probably a decade ago, I went to Cambridge University in the UK where he was, and I went to a conference on, that had part of it was on um, artificial intelligence and Christianity. And back then, and some of those things are real now, back then they were talking about the speed in which artificial intelligence would multiply, and they were talking about some of the dangers and the ethical issues facing America. The guy who was speaking was working for the U.S. at the United Nations dealing with artificial intelligence. Well, we're now a decade down the road. And Stephen Hawking said, these are his words, the genie's out of the bottle. I fear that artificial intelligence may replace humans altogether. Do you listen to the news? Science has not brought salvation. It's brought despair. The calculations have come and they've said there is no hope. Global warming, we're toast. Literally. Right? That's what you hear. An asteroid's going to punt us. Boy, your, your chief priest dies telling you, I'm out of here, you're all gone. Unless you do the impossible. That's the world in which we live. And my dear friends, what do we do as Christians? We have to not get in the lingo of despair. Sometimes I feel like the way Christians talk, they forgot we have the king on the throne. That the one who is the mind behind all things the, the, the mathematician behind the math and the scientist behind the science is the creator of the universe who rules over all things and sustains it by the word of his mouth. There's no asteroid out there that doesn't follow the voice of Jesus Christ. And you and I need to announce to this world that he has risen from the dead and promised to come again. And my dear friends, the hope is he's going to make all things new. He's going to make all things new. And it doesn't depend on you. And it doesn't depend on me. That doesn't mean you're careless and cocky. It means you're hopeful and humble. He is Lord. Does that make sense? Christian, stop sounding like the world is coming to an end. The very least and the very best, it is coming to an end. <laughs> right? And there'll be all things made new. That's what we believe. Not only does it say that they have lost hope, their end is destruction. And I need to pause there and say, sorry, I was going to go further and say their end really is destruction. We, do, we, we are not consumed with the reality that human humanity is on a path towards global destruction. The destiny of humanity is to stand before a holy God and answer for their lives. But Christ is returning and he is the judge of the living and the dead. And your neighbor might be saying things that you think are crazy and your neighbor might be looking at you like you're crazy, but your neighbor is going to stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords. And their only hope, there is only one name under salvation by which men may be saved and it's Jesus Christ. Don't get into an argument over global warming when you need to be on your knees praying for the salvation of your neighbor. 
you could be absolutely right on everything you argue and absolutely wrong on the fact that you argued it for the reason that you argued it. Understand? We're different. This is about Christ and eternity. Paul, Paul in Romans chapter 9, talks about his Jewish brethren, and he said, oh, I wish that I could be accursed that they might be saved. When's the last time you prayed a prayer like that? God, strike me down if they might be saved. If the world could be saved by the madness, by the taking me off the planet, take me off the planet. That's the way we're to come at this. Our lives are secure. Lay down your life. Apart from Christ, they don't have hope, not only in this life, but in the life to come. Their God is their, look at verse uh, 19, their God is what? Their stomach, their appetites, hedonism. Do we live in a culture that's incredibly hedonistic? You know what hedonism is? Right, it's, I'm going to find my life and define it by pleasure. Now, why do you go to hedonism? Why is the world obsessed with getting sexual pleasure, trying to get um, experiential pleasure? we got to do the latest, greatest, hottest, newest adventure. Why is everybody doing radical adventure things? I, I can't imagine my grandmother doing what grandmothers do today. Anybody remember the grandmother? I thought my, my grandmother was my age, and she looked like the ancient of days. She was old. <laughs> I, I don't know if she got out of her chair. Right, the whole everybody, now everybody's grandmother's out there climbing Mount Everest. <laughs> You're thinking, what's going on? There's a side of that that's great, right? You're just not rolling over and dying. But the other side of it, it's pathetic. If the thing is, we're trying to make life count by indulging in pleasure. Their God has become their appetite, and that's why they're going through despair. In an article in uh, psycho, um, Psychology Today, just a couple years ago, Steve Taylor, Dr. Steve Taylor wrote an article called Why Hedonism Doesn't Lead to Happiness. And he gave an illustration pointing to Hollywood our, our, um, actor uh, Errol Flynn from The Last Generation who was known for his hedonism. He was born in Australia, came to Hollywood, dated all the Hollywood starlets, you know, just lived an out-and-out hedonistic life. And he says, this is um, psychologist Steve Taylor, he said, Flynn's lavish lifestyle may seem attractive, but more than anything, he exemplified the illusory nature of hedonistic happiness. This is not a Christian writing. This is a secular psychologist. The illusory nature of hedonistic happiness. Dissatisfied and dissolute, Errol Flynn died at the age of 50, partly due to the effects of alcohol abuse. And he goes on to describe it. He says, in the long run, trying to find happiness solely through hedonism leads to a sense of meaningless and emptiness. Why is America depressed? Because they're climbing every mountain, experiencing every height of depravity and delight, and what they're coming up with is emptiness, like ecclesiastic vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It's a chasing after the wind. It doesn't meet. Why? Because you were made for God. Eternity is placed in your heart. You can't put finite things in a chasm, in a, in, in a hole that can only be filled by the one true, living, eternal, infinite God. You can't do it. And so we look around at us and we see their God, it's their appetite. And so let me just say this to you, Lovingly, graciously, Christians, we don't win the world by trying to outcool them and out-event them and out-experience them. Don't 
buy into it. And sometimes we get like that. We look at the stress of the world. We see the clock is ticking. Time seems to go faster. The earth is going to go up for smoke. I've never climbed Mount Everest. I've never been to the Rocky Mountains. I've never wrestled a shark off a surfboard, whatever you want to do. You go on Instagram and see everybody's doing everything at once, and you think, man, to be relevant in this world, I've got to go and do all these things. No, you've got to be trusting in the only one who's the fountain of living water because that does not satisfy. And when they come up with sand, they need to drink of the living water. When they come out of their 30th relationship, when their families have fallen apart, When their kids are looking at them and saying, where's the hope? You need to be able to point to them and say, there is life in Jesus. There's life in Jesus. There is nothing else that satisfies. You understand? And so we got to be really careful. We need to weep, but don't walk that way. Very few of you will ever convert anyone to Christianity by impressing them with your skateboarding. Right? Right? Because eventually you're going to fall off. The earth. Eventually you're just not, there's, you won't be able to keep up. Don't walk that way. Weep. Look at also it says here, and they are, they glory in their shame. Their minds are set. I'm just going to wrap it up here and say what ends up happening in a culture is we start singing and tweeting and Instagramming and TikToking the things that we ought to be ashamed of. Godless, repulsive, egotistical, narcissistic nonsense. Christians, stop it. Stop it. You know the most anti-gospel thing you can do is try to make people think you're a hero. You know how you become an enemy of the cross? By trying to make everybody think you've got it together. This is a trustworthy saying, deserving full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save who? Sinners. That's the, that's the message. That's the message. I'll tell you this. You're not as impressive as you're trying to make people think you are. Dibley. I've told you before, When my parents meet people that I grew up with and tell them that I'm a pastor, the first reaction isn't, oh, that was obvious. Right? They go, well, God can do anything. (laughs) Right? That's what my aunt said, my Aunt June. I believe anything is possible with God. That's what you want people to see. That left to yourself, you mess up your family. Left to yourself, you wouldn't have messed up your marriage. Left to yourself... In your ego, you ruin your career. You'll bring dishonor. Did anybody hear what happened to Rabbi Zacharias this week? Sexual scandal. Right. It's all come out after his death. Right? You read it and you go, what's going on here? What's going on here is what you read in the Old Testament what you read in the New Testament. Peter denies and, and David sins and pastors fall right have we all seen it we all experienced it what is the one true statement 
There is only one righteous one, Jesus Christ, and he died in the place for sinners that they might be forgiven and live again. And that's what you tell your neighbor. They don't need to see another impressive show. They need to know there's someone who comes for broken and lost sinners and loves them and has redeemed them and can set them free. So when we rage, when we rage against the world, what are we telling them? We're telling them that somehow we're different than them. Somehow we're better than them. Somehow there's a more sophisticated right way. Let me just tell you this. The only thing you legitimately can tell your neighbor and your friends and your kids when you raise them up, the only thing you can tell them is that there's one who loved me despite the mess I'm in. And he will never let you go. That's the message of the cross. That's the message of the cross. Rejoice. Aren't you going to, doesn't that give you joy? He'll never leave you nor forsake you. That he paid for all your sin, that he lived for your righteousness, that he died on the tree and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Isn't that good news? Isn't, aren't you glad when he comes back again, he's not got a checklist of everything that we should have done? If he's got that list and he pulls the list out, I get the F-A-L-E fail, Mark. But what I get is 100% absolutely forgiven, cleansed of all guilt, white-robed righteousness, welcome into the joy of your master. Hallelujah. Friends, keep that in mind. Don't get into the debate. Don't get into the mud and mire. Stay on message. Stay in mission. Let's pray for that. So thank you, God. Thank you so much that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That he said it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Thank you that in our weakness, our struggles, our fears, our anxiety, our egotism, our pleasure-seeking, there is a grace sufficient for us. So, Heavenly Father, keep us on mission, I pray. Keep us out of the mud and mire. Keep us, dear God, full of hope. Because if Jesus can save me, he can save anybody. Thank you, Father. Thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.